prayer before we begin the sermon today. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would bless us, Lord, as we apply this passage into a, uh, the closing of our sermons on eternal security. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to have wisdom and see things the way that you see them. And may it encourage our hearts to continue to serve you, not looking at uh, everything about ourselves, but just focused on you and allow you to do the work through us, through your Holy Spirit. And Father, it frees us up so much to be able to serve you better. I pray that you encourage our hearts and strengthen us. And be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. In this passage, you can really hear the frustration in King David's heart, can't you? It had taken David's adversaries a while, but they finally were able to get to him. Uh, not, uh, not, now he was tired of even having to deal with them at all. Uh, he was tired of the malicious lies and tired of their slander. And he was prepared for God to punish them severely. He therefore requested that their names be removed from the book of the living. Some people have expressed doubt about the permanence of their salvation in light of these verses. And they often connect it to Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 where it says, you'll see on the screen, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. They'll say, well, if the over, them that overcometh won't be blotted out, that must mean that someone will be blotted out. And they'll connect the book of the living to the book of life. And it's a reasonable concern, looking at those verses. But we have to look closer than just the surface. In this passage, in Psalms 69, King David asks God to eliminate the names of his enemies from the book of the living. He would not have asked if he didn't think it was possible to do. It would be tempting to approach this passage by saying David was just mistaken in his request. And perhaps he didn't know God wasn't in the habit of blotting people's names out of his book, as we can see in Revelation 3.5. This logic, however, calls into question the psalm's source of inspiration. If he just made a mistake in his wording, it's unlikely that David would be led by the Holy Spirit to ask a question that is not within the realm of theological possibility if the Holy Spirit was guiding him as he wrote. You understand what I'm saying there? But the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And David was confident in that he knew that he was at what, uh, what he was asking in his prayer. As we can, we'll see here today, his request was unquestionably consistent with God's usual course of business. So we see, first of all, that in order for this to be, uh, in order to understand this, or to take this view at least, some assumptions are made. Number one, some assumptions are made. The problem is we frequently interpret passages like this one and others like it from a New Testament perspective. In other words, we, uh, we apply what we've learned from the New Testament to the Old Testament verses. We jump right in and interpret these Old Testament passages according to the New Testament usages rather than trying to figure out what the authors of the Old Testament meant by specific words and phrases. In this instance, 
we have taken the phrase, the book of the living, from Psalm 69, and we've interpreted it in light of what is said about the book of life in the New Testament. Our assumption is that the book mentioned in Revelation is the one in which David speaks of as the book of the living. What did David mean when he used the phrase, the book of the living? This would be a more accurate question to ask, I guess. To address that question, we would need to turn to other parts of the Old Testament rather than the New Testament to find out. You see, the Hebrews of old saw God as a great record keeper, and he is. They imagined him to be holding a book containing a list of every person still alive. It makes no difference whether they thought it was a literal book or not. In their writings, they made reference to this book in the same way that the authors of the New Testament make reference to the book of life. Anyone who has read a significant portion of the Old Testament is aware of how important names and genealogies were to the Jews, who took this type of record-keeping very, very seriously. They're mentioned throughout the Old Testament in various points in even Matthew and Luke as they open. The Jews believe that God also kept accurate records, which he does. The Old Testament writers often alluded to this divine ritual of keeping records. The book of Psalms contains four passages that are of particular interest here. First one is in Psalms 87 verse 6, where it says, The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there, Selah. Uh, Psalm 56, 8 is another one. He says, Thou tellest my wanderings, <clears throat> put thou my tears into thy bottle, are they not in thy book? In Psalm 139, verse 15 and 16, where it says, My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, and yet being unperfect, and in thy, body, and, and, in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. He's keeping track and keeping note and keeping record. Then Psalm 51, verse 1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. The blot out speaks of removing something from a book. These verses reveal some intriguing things. We learn in the first passage <clears throat> excuse me, that God maintains a register in which he keeps track of all the living. Secondly, we keep, God keeps records of the things that happen in our lives, according to the second passage. The third passage reveals that God has a record book that lists the number of days assigned to each person's life. The word book isn't actually used in Psalm 51, but the words blot out are. Which leads us to the next thing that we want to look at. Number two, first assumptions are made. Number two, what is meant by blot out? Blot out, blot out are the same words that David uses in Psalm 69 when he talks about erasing the names of his enemies. Blotting something out refers to erasing it. According to Psalm 51, God also keeps a log of all the sins people commit. Despite the numerous times that books are mentioned in the Psalms, we never come across a book that is said contains the names of saved people as opposed to unsaved people in the Old Testament. The phrase, and not be written with the righteous, here in this passage that, he used, that David uses here, that's the closest we have 
coming to it in the Old Testament. David is speaking of God's record of the living when he uses the phrase, the book of the living in Psalm 69. Physical life, not spiritual life. This interpretation fits with Psalm 139 as well, the verses that we read just a moment ago. During his prayer, David does not ask God to condemn his opponents to eternal hell. He wants, them to, he wants him to cut their life short and remove them from the living. And it's supported by a number of textual components. And first of all, David asked God to punish his enemies physically in addition to other things. Psalm 69, a few verses back, I have it on the screen, but it's also in the chapter you're open to, I believe. Uh, verse 22, it says, Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. He starts off by pleading with God to inflict illness on them in his defense. Then he requests that their families endure hardship. Now, as, as those who are in the New Testament age, we still bristle at that, don't we? We think, ooh, that's awful harsh. Aren't we told to forgive our enemies? Yes, we have in this day of age, day, day of grace, we have been told numerous times to forgive our enemies. But David is really going through something here, and he speaks from the heart. Then he requests that their names be struck from the, from the list of the living. He gives the impression of asking God to eliminate them entirely from the picture. Second, if the book of the living is interpreted as the Lamb's book of life, it implies that David's adversaries were Christians, or at least believed God, had trusted in the Messiah. They were righteous. How else would their names have appeared in the Lamb's book of life to begin with? But the entire psalm portrays these people as wicked and unrighteous. Third, David requests in the preceding verses that his adversaries not be permitted to come into thy righteousness. They would have already entered into his righteousness if their names were recorded in the Lamb's book of life. We're obviously not talking about people who are righteous people, people who have, in our vernacular, have accepted Christ or have become Christians. Therefore, it would be more logical to view this book as a list of the living rather than the list of the righteous. It's interesting to note that David is not the only person in the Old Testament to request that God remove someone from a record. Moses asked that his own name be removed. Exodus chapter 32, you'll see it on the screen here, verses 31 through 33, he says, And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Once more, there's a book here, that alludes to a list of the living. Moses was employing God to put an end to his life if he will not forgive them. Not condemning himself to eternal damnation. He wasn't asking, God, send me to hell if you won't forgive this. 
He was saying, kill me if you're not going to forgive them. And God declined. Nevertheless, he made good on his promise to kill the members of the group who disobeyed him, and he actually did. Exodus 32:35 says, And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. The idea that these people were condemned to hell is never mentioned. The idea that a man after God's own heart would ask for the erasure of someone's name from the Lamb's book of life is, is rather unsettling. That, that's an eternal decision. Something that can never be taken back. Something that only the person who condemns themselves by unbelief should, be, uh, should make. God himself doesn't even make that decision. It doesn't really make sense when you stop to think about it. In order to save the world, the same God who's asking to be re removed the name from the book of the living, the same God sent his own son into it in order to make that salvation possible. He had to pay a heavy price. Adding names to the list, not removing them is our Heavenly Father's business. Amen? That, my friend, is a great source of joy for us who are included in that list. Amen? This was emphasized by Jesus to his disciples when he said in Luke chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall be by any means hurt you. And boy, what an amazing thing he said here, right? That power he's giving unto his disciples. Then verse 20, he says, Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Here he's talking about the Lamb's book of life. He's talking about, boy, this is what you need to rejoice about, and we do, and we should. Amen? May this wonderful truth become an assurance and a joy to you. So today we come to an end of our study on eternal security. And I'm just beginning here, so don't get your hopes up. But now I want to take just a moment. I want to review what we've talked about. So number three, let's review. We started off our study talking about what was at stake if our eternal security hinged on what we, hinged on what we do. And we named a number of things that are at risk if we do not have eternal security. Number one was assurance. If you want to jot these down, I didn't put blanks there, but you can. I don't have it on the screen. Uh, but assurance. Our assurance is at risk. Could we really feel secure in our assurance of salvation and be able to focus on what God has for us to do if we're constantly worried about our eternal security? No, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, These things have I written unto you. John's telling all this whole book, I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He says, I want you to know that you have this. Not doubt, not worry, not anything else. I want you to focus on the things that I want you to do in this life. Reach other people for Christ. Build my kingdom. I don't want you to be so focused on, oh, did I mess up? Did I cross that line? Did I do something that lost my eternal security? Philippians 4, 6 says, be careful, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. We shouldn't be anxious. God tells us, don't be anxious about it. But with, in prayer and supplication and th with thanksgiving, talk to God. So our assurance is at risk. Number two, our forgiveness is at risk. 
Are we forgiven or are we not? What sins were forgiven? Were we forgiven for? 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all from all unrighteousness. You know what that word all means? All. That's right. You've heard a pastor say that once or twice, haven't you? All unrighteousness. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. He has paid it. We are forgiven. And because of his eternal security that he gives us, because we're insecure in him, we know that we have that assurance of forgiveness. Number three, the belief of faith alone is at risk. Can salvation truly be by faith alone if we have to do something to keep our salvation? We would be working to keep our security. That's not faith alone. No, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He wants us to focus on doing righteousness, not to keep our salvation, but doing righteousness to proclaim the truth of God and be what God wants us to be in Him. So faith alone itself is at risk if we don't believe in eternal security. Next, love. Love is at risk. We would continually be struggling with whether God really loves us if we would do that this line was somewhere that we might cross. Then if abandoning the faith or falling into sin makes my eternal security, messes my eternal security up, I would have more capacity of, of unconditional love than God. And that's not possible. We all know the, the unconditional love that so many that uh, mothers have for their child or a father has for their family. It's illustrated everywhere we look. If God did not have internally secure us, we could not truly believe the love that he has that he tells us is unconditional. Then next, we've mentioned, alluded to this already, but focus would be in danger. Our focus would be in danger. What are we supposed to be focusing on in this life? If we are having to be concerned about eternal security, then we'll lose focus on what God has called us to accomplish. He wants us to focus on him not our own works. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which, doth, uh, which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down in the right hand of the throne of God. Keeping our eyes on Jesus is what God says he wants us to do. Not on us. Not on our life. Not on our deeds. Keeping our eye on him. That's how we're going to be successful. Colossians 3, 2 tells us, Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. After this, we talked about the, what was at risk. We talked about what salvation is in the first place. Salvation is by grace, through faith. It was not our goodness that saved us. 
lest any man should boast. It is not our faith that saves us. It is only the conduit or road to get us to grace of God. Later, we had looked at the fact that we're adopted into the, as children of God. We're part of His family. Nowhere in Scripture, or in common decency, I might add, is there a place for an unadoption. There was a social media person who... Uh, uh, went to another country and uh, went, uh, went through the process to adopt a child and to bring it back here. And they were had a big following on social media, so they've been telling about how they were going to adopt and all of this stuff. And then once they adopted the child and went through the process, they found out that that, that country had a law that if you adopt somebody from that country, their image can never be used on the Internet at all. And they can't be used for anything. That couple, instead of loving the child the way, the way that they should, returned the child to that country and unadopted them. A practice that was condemned by everyone. And they lost all of their following, just about. The fact, the idea that someone would unadopt someone is so foreign to human nature and human understanding that it's reviled, it's disgusting. People say, I can't even believe you would do such a thing. How could we possibly think that a holy and wonderful God like we serve would unadopt us? Nowhere in Scripture is that even an option. We're a part of His family, and nothing can remove us from the love of God. Nowhere in Scripture or in common decency is there a place for unadoption. Romans 8, 15, and 16 tells us, For ye, are not, ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba, again, is that what we would call Daddy. That personal relationship. We're able to cry out to Him like Daddy, as if we were calling our personal Father. He said, the Spirit itself beareth witness with us that we are the children of God. Ephesians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. Verse 5, it says, having predestinated us. That word predestinated means chosen before time. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the goodwill of his pleasure. We looked at Luke chapter 15 after this and the prodigal son. We saw the story how the prodigal son went into sin and took his fortune that he had gained and took his inheritance ahead of time before his father died and re horribly rejected his father and horribly uh, uh, was rebellious against his father and went into sin. And sin took its normal toll on him and he uh, found himself in a pigsty, an Israelite in a pigsty. Boy, that's something. And the people hearing Jesus were disgusted, no doubt, by hearing this. The son came to the conclusion and said, I am no longer worthy to be called his son. 
I'll go to him and ask if I can just be a servant. <coughs> we saw that as he came home, the father ran to meet him as his son, embraced him as his son, returned the outward signs of a robe and of a ring, the signs that he is his son, and killed the fatted calf to rejoice the fact that he said, my son who is lost now is found. Nowhere in that story does it describe the son or the boy as no longer being the father's son. Nowhere. He did not reap the benefits of being a son while he was gone, but he was still his son. We've looked at the fact that we are established in Christ, anointed in God and sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, it says, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. We are sealed. We have the down payment, the earnest of our salvation by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he comes into us and he seals us. How long does that seal last? Ephesians 4.30 tells us that grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. There's no way for that sealing to be undone. He says you are sealed unto the day of redemption, which time we won't need to be sealed any longer. He says until the day you are glorified, until the day that you come to heaven and you are spend eternity with me, you are sealed Unto the day of redemption. We looked at many verses that are used to try to disprove eternal security. But we know that the word of God cannot contradict itself. If we see a passage that seems to contradict another passage. We must do our due diligence to study and seek out. How it can, what it can mean that can be in balance with all of Scripture. Many times the people, atheists, have tried to use the Word of God and say, see, it contradicts itself. And by human understanding, they try to take the surface of something and say, see, it cannot be true. But it is. We can't take a surface look and human understanding. We have to go deeper. Study to show thyself approved unto God. And we have to see what is it that God is trying to tell us. Study the word of God. That's a big chore, isn't it? But it's required. We have to know all of scripture. Not just some of it. Or else we get ourselves into trouble. So God's word cannot contradict itself. Romans 8 verse 38 it says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things to present nor things uh, to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He starts it, uh, starts it off. He starts it off saying, uh, go back to that for, verse 38. I don't have it in my notes for some reason here. Uh, verse 38 says, For I am sweet. Uh, no, that's not it. Never mind. Must be a different verse. Anyways, uh, John 10, 28 says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. This is the verse I was looking at. 
Uh, Neither shall any man pluck him out of my hand. No one shall be able to pluck him out. Are you someone? (laughs) Means you can't pluck yourself out. You don't have the power. Are you more powerful than God? (laughs) No. God holds our eternal security in his hand. And no one can remove us. We saw the importance of working for the Lord and not for ourselves. Working so that we can uh, please him and so that we can honor him and the things that he has done. Not to keep our salvation, but because of our salvation. We serve him through the power of the Holy Spirit and honor him and all that he calls us to do. And we see that we are going to be given an account of ourselves to him. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 says, For other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. You're going to build your life on all of these tools, and some of it is going to be precious, and some of it is going to be faulty, temporary, decayable. He says, but as you build this thing, every man uh, build upon this foundation these things. Every man's work shall be made manifest. It's going to be shown what was the basis of this life. He says, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If it goes through the fire and it comes out the other side because it's able to withstand the fire like gold and silver and precious stones, then you will be rewarded for that which you did for Christ, which is eternal, that which you have done through the power of the Holy Spirit, that which you have done not with selfish ambition, but that which is consumable, the wood, the hay, the stubble, that which is done in pride, that which is done in the flesh, that which is done against God's will, that you have built into your life will be destroyed. He says in verse 15, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But listen to this. But he himself shall be saved. He himself shall be saved, yet so by fire. Boy, the purification of all of our life. I look back on my life and I see a lot of wood. I see a lot of hay. I see a lot of stubble. I see a lot of things that, Lord, I say, I wish I could go back and and replace it. I wish I could do it different. I wish I had have done it different. But all I can do, I could do nothing about yesterday except ask forgiveness. I can't do really do anything about tomorrow. I can plan for tomorrow, but if I act in the flesh and not yield to the Holy Spirit, then tomorrow's no better when it comes to hay, wood, and stubble. I'm going to be going to the Home Depot rather than the jewelry store. <laughs> but I can do something about right now. The present, this moment, right now, right now, right now, it's the only thing I could do about something about. So what are you going to do? Are you going to choose right at this moment 
to use gold, silver, and precious stones, or are you going to use wood, hay, and stubble? The day will show it. I want to have mostly gold, silver, and precious stones. Oh, some will burn away, no doubt. But I pray by God's grace that the majority of us will withstand the fire. We don't have a license to sin, we looked at. Just because we have eternal security, it doesn't give us, and that's a big argument against eternal security. Well, that just gives you a license to sin. In fact, some wonderful people, preachers, in fact, the founder of Methodism said uh, himself, I would preach eternal security, but I'm afraid it will make my people lazy. It doesn't make us lazy if they truly believe what God has done for us, the natural response is to work for him, to praise him, to love him, to give him our all. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 9 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall reap of the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Then he says, let us not be weary in well-doing. In due season we shall reap if we faint not. I wonder what we will reap. Well, it's going to be what you sowed. Nobody sows corn and reaps an apple tree. No, you reap what you sow. You've heard the famous sermon, I'm sure. Every preacher, I think, preaches it at some point or another. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow, right? I plant a kernel of corn and I get a stalk. And I don't know, how many, stalk, how many ears of corn are on a stalk? Three or four or five, maybe? And each of those has hundreds, a hundred kernels, maybe. I don't know. A lot. I reap a whole lot more than I sowed. That's good if you're sowing the right thing. Amen. An apple seed grows up to, uh, to hopefully produce thousands of apples through the years. You reap more than you sow. But if you sow the wrong things, you're going to reap more than you sow. And then they say... You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, and you always reap later than you sow. Nobody goes out to the field and say, I plan on, on, I plan on planting some corn tomorrow. I'm just coming out here and to pick some corn. No, you reap later than you sow. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Romans 5, verse 21 says, That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, well, continuing from that verse, it says, much shall, uh, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If we sin, then God gives us grace, and so we should just keep sinning so that we can get more grace. And that's what he's saying here. Should we just continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, he says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? No, just because we're, we have eternal security in Christ. It doesn't mean that we have a license to sin, to do whatever we want. How can we continue in sin when we, were dead, when we are dead to sin? 
How can we live therein any longer? The real question is, if you were to die today, do you know 100% sure that you would go to heaven? If the answer is not unequivocally, absolutely yes, you need to settle it today and be 100% sure. If the answer is yes, then I would ask you, if you were to die today and stand before heaven's gates and Jesus were to meet you there and say, well, why should I let you in? What would your answer be? If it's anything other than or anything to do with your own works and your own righteousness, you will be turned away. I don't have these verses on your screen or in your notes, but Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? We've dealt with your name. We've, we've, we're, we're one of you. And in thy name we have cast out devils. They're going out doing exorcisms. And in thy name we have done marvelous, wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. But they had righteous deeds. But they had good works. It sounds at least like their good works outweighed their bad, right? I mean, it's a scale, right? <coughs> their good outweighed the bad. But yet Jesus said, depart from me. You workers of iniquity, I never knew you. No, it's not a scale. If you go to heaven's gates and he says those words, why should I let you in? It's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your good deeds. If you're trusting in that, you're on your way to hell. If you trust in your communion, if you trust in your baptism, you're on your way to hell. For by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If your answer is anything at that gate other than because I have put my faith and trust in what you have done for me on the cross to save me. If it's anything other than Jesus, you need to come and talk to me or one of the leaders of the church today and settle it today. Do not leave here. You're not promised tomorrow. Do not leave here if you do not know. If you're watching by live stream and you do not know, give us a call. You can find our number on our website and on Google. Give us a call and we will talk to you about how you can know 100% sure that if you were died today, you can go to heaven. If it's anything other than Jesus that you're trusting in, you need to deal with it. It is by grace alone through faith, plus nothing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this, passage, this, this series that you have laid on my heart, Lord, and helped me with on eternal security. We thank you, Lord, that we can fully trust in you, not only to be saved, but to stay saved. Father, it, it just, 
it boggles my mind how people can think that we, that we did nothing to get saved in the first place. How could we possibly do something to get unsaved? And yet there are so many that are struggling today. Their focus is on the wrong things because they're constantly worried about where their eternity lies. Father, I pray that you, would, that you would secure it in our minds and in our hearts so that we can look beyond this issue and go forward to serve you. Not to go forward and live in sin and live whatever we have. We are secure so we can just do whatever we want. No, God forbid. How should we? How could we? When we are dead to sin, it really calls into concern whether or not they're saved in the first place, if that's their heart for their life. They've truly trusted in you. But no, Lord, we are secure so that we can serve you. Now, may, Lord, may we not just sit and watch as others serve, but may we take an active part today and serve you Lay into our house some gold and some silver and some precious stones. Doing it with a heart of gratefulness to you and following your Holy Spirit's leading. Pray that you be with us today, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Let's all stand together as we sing just before we go. One verse of only.